the United States of America, home of the brave. A place that is filled with different cultures, diversity, beautiful scenery, a place I call home. But one thing many people may not know about the USA is that artisans, craftsmen, and women, photographers, musicians, creatives, makers of all sorts that come with this beautiful country. Many people tend to buy products from major online retailers that they forget about the make that is happening right here in America. From the Industrial Revolution and even prior to that time period, America has continued to build its economy through makers, and there are thousands of them. America has makers that forge steel to make knives and axes, sew skirts, hats, and handbags with materials of all sorts, paint and capture visuals that are forever in your home and carried in your heart, share stories through music and writings, make special treats and refreshing beverages, and much more. Join me through the journey through the lives of makers across our country to hear how they get down with their craft. I'm Kristen Vermeule, and this is Makers of the USA. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Makers of the USA main series. My goal over the next month is to push out interviews that I have not touched yet that I did in 2022. So you'll be seeing a ton of bonus episodes and I hope you enjoy them. As you all know, I'm a one woman show when it comes to my podcast. So it's going to feel great getting these episodes out. You all are going to highly enjoy them. Next up is Phil Costello, and he creates sculptures and carvings that call forth the wonder and beauty of nature and wood. Last summer, I had the privilege of interviewing him at the Cliff House. The Cliff House invited Phil to carve right there on their property, sell his work, and some of his work is featured in the hotel. One piece that comes to mind that I have seen in the hotel is in one of their conference rooms, a beautiful mermaid, which we talk about during the interview. Phil learned the intricacies of wood carving detail and design, utilizing wood as a medium to manifest beautiful, one-of-a-kind artistic treasures. Through determination and natural talent, Phil discovered a potential for creation that is boundless. Through careful honing of technique and process, Phil has carved a place for himself among the finest artisans in adepts of the wood sculpting craft. From a studio in southern Maine and southwest Florida, he is surrounded by the beauty in and around the ocean and is inspired to duplicate these nautical pieces in detail with masterful skill. His vision for design and the careful planning of each piece, along with the type of wood used, allows for efficient, flawless execution of realistic sculptures. New and novel sculpture requests keep Phil in a continual state of artistic development, and he readily enjoys the challenge of creating custom commission works. Now, let's get to it. Let's talk craft with Phil Costello. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into the Makers of Maine series as a part of the Makers of USA podcast. I have Philip Costello here with me today and we are sitting right in Cliff House. It is gorgeous out here. My goodness, what a view. <laughs> Philip, uh, the question that I typically kick off is uh, what is your craft and what inspired you to start it? Wood carving, I guess, in, in my particular case, wood sculpture would be more of a definition of what I do. A traditionalist wood carver uses chisels and gouges only, they're very specific. I've have found that using some electric tools and sanding, I can sometimes bring the piece to the point that I like. So I'm more of a wood sculpture than I am a wood carver, so to speak. A traditionalist would be a wood carver, I'm a wood sculptor. And I've always been intrigued. Since a young child, I've always enjoyed drawing. My grandmother was a tremendous drawer and painter. My dad loved to draw, and I loved to draw. And I've always wanted to 
carve, but of course life gets in the way of so many things and work and life and children and families and that sort of thing. But I was able to retire early and I said, you know, when I retire, which was approximately nine years ago, I'm going to start carving and I've been carving ever since. Wow. Oh my goodness. And so I met you through Cliff House, and as you, my listeners know, or maybe this is new to them, Cliff House really supports the artisans in the local community. And tell me a little bit about how you started, you know, doing your demos here, because that's it's amazing. I just saw you doing some wood carving outside on a beautiful day near the water. Like, how did this relationship come about? Interesting story there. My wife and I had a store in Maine where we would sell beach to cornhome furnishings. And the manager, Nancy White, came to our store to, to buy some of our product at one time when they were doing some renovation here at the Cliff House. And uh, she saw me carving in my studio. And she came down and we had a nice conversation. She saw some of the work that I had done. And she says, if we're ever looking, I'm going to come back to you and let you know and see if you can do something for us. About a year ago, maybe a little more than a year ago, she came. She called me up. She was able to make contact. And she said, I'd like you to do a seven-foot carving for us, for our discovery center. And I said, a seven-foot carving is an awful large carving. Well, she said, I just like some height because I like it to be a focal point in the middle of discovery center. So I said, let me think about it and get back to you what I think would be appropriate for that. It wasn't but two days later, I ran into a gentleman that was at the Cliff House. He was actually having something to eat. He looked out the window, and he could see two humpback whales breaching in the ocean. And we had the conversation, how he explained to me how he had been here, saw the two humpback whales and said, I said to myself when, I, when he said that, I thought humpback whale would be perfect for that. So contacted Nancy White and said, Nancy, how about if we do a humpback whale? I'd like to put him on a pedestal and the whale itself would be about four and a half feet long. She said, great idea. So that's how we made contact with the Cliff House, Nancy in particular, on that particular carving that we did. Wow, that's amazing. Does that still exist in the Discovery Center? Sure does. It sure does. And it sits as the focal point right in the middle of Discovery Center. And the the grand thing about it, as you walk in and you look out, you see the whale, but you look through the windows and you can see the ocean. So it almost simulates, in some respects, a humpback whale actually breaching. That is crazy. I'm going to go see that. I can't believe I haven't seen that yet. But um, wow, what what an amazing story. I mean, Nancy's so good at just bringing in artisans and showcasing work throughout this resort. It certainly is in so many respects. So the shop that you started, so it was on Route 1. Correct. Um, You and your wife started it. My wife and I, yes. Yes. And so what was sort of the inspiration behind that? Why did you start it? Well, she's a, a designer by hobby. I'm a woodcarver by hobby. We said, let's put those two together. How can we do that? Let's start a store where she can actually sell product and help people design for their homes. And I could have my carving studio within the store itself. Wow. So an interesting consideration, which I mentioned earlier, was husband and wife would come in quite often shopping. Quite often the husband shops with the wife and he follows her around. They would see me carving. They would come down to my studio. We'd stand there and talk for a while. And then they'd turn and realize that their wife is checking out at the, at the register. So they'd go running from, from my carving studio to check and see what the wife had purchased. <laughs> That's the way to pull somebody in. Yeah, it sounds right. like you had a pretty successful business. Certainly did. You certainly did. <laughs> now, what were you doing before? Because I know you mentioned you, you retired and you wanted to get into your hobby more and create a full-time gig out of it, which you certainly 
certainly are doing, but what were you doing before this? Yeah, I've always been in design, some form of design. I actually have a degree in forestry from the University of Massachusetts. Mm. And I did a lot of landscape design in conjunction with that. And when I got out of school, I stayed in the landscape field. I did a lot of landscape and irrigation design. I then kind of morphed into architectural lighting <clears throat> and landscape lighting. So designing has always been my forte. I've always been, as I mentioned before, a, a drawer, a drafter, a, somebody that likes to do sketches. So when I started carving, I took the two dimension, which drawing is, and I turned it into the third dimension, which has been the real challenge. Because when you draw, you can create the third dimension on paper, but when you're creating it in real life in a sculpture, it's a, it's much more challenging. I'm sure. And with your wood sculptor, and so thank you for defining that because when I initially just thought of your craft, I just assumed it was wood carving, but I didn't know there was a difference. Now, what does that entail? Like the process of going through this, like when you have an idea such as the whale one that you did, because you know that was somebody that mentioned that. That's sort of that inspiration, right? So, what do you go and taking those steps of like, okay, what type of wood do I need? What type of tools do I need? I would like to like walk me through what a process of your craft. Okay, first and most importantly is what are we going to design? What is our design? What's our sculpture going to be? Sometimes we'll even do it in clay to kind of get a handle on what we think best. And once we get a good idea as to what we want to sculpt or what we want to carve in the design, the basic design for it, we then decide on the wood. There are probably a half a dozen woods that are used for carving. There's a few that I've kind of prioritized over the years. Mahogany is one of the best woods to carve because it's very hard it's very dense it's got beautiful grain but because it's very hard and very dense because it's very hard and very dense it's very difficult to to carve and it's also very hard on your tools you have to sharpen more often the other woods that you'd use would be butternut uh basswood i use a lot of spanish cedar spanish cedar is a a little bit darker uh, excuse me a little bit lighter than mahogany, but darker than basswood which or butternut, which is very light-colored wood. And it's got some beautiful grains to it, but most importantly, it's very soft. So selection of wood would be the first one. And then what I would do is quite often when I design, I try to bring my design in proportion to whatever I'm trying to design. Right now, mm. I'm working on an eagle. Obviously, I don't have a six-foot wing spread, but the eagle that I'm working on now has a four-foot wing spread. So then you have to proportion it correctly. Problem two is when you're doing a large carving, very difficult, if not impossible, to find a large piece of wood. So what you have to do is buy wood. I buy it actually rough sawn. I then have a shop where I bring it down to finely edged. And what I do is then glue the blocks together in mm. the form of the shape of what the carving is going to be. Wow. You know, starting with tools to take the major wood away, what we call boasting or taking the larger pieces away till we get a rough rough idea of what the actual carving is. And then we start in with the finer tools to bring mm. it down and hone it to the shape and size and detail that we want. Yeah, That's okay. basically it. And then most importantly, which I sometimes have a challenge with, is the finishing of it mm. as... as good a wood carver as I'd like to be or or I'm progressing towards I still have perfected the art of finishing so 
either my wife, who is a painter, finisher, or I'll bring it to a finishing shop and let them do the finished coat on it. Because when you spend a lot of time, you've completed a beautiful carving, and if you're, it's time to have the finish, you can't go guessing as to the right thing to do. You have to have somebody that's a specialty at that, doing that type of work for you. Right. Makes sense. Yes. And do you typically just stain it when you finish it, or do you paint on it as well? If it's a lighter colored wood, such as the basswood, we will more often than not paint. If it's a darker colored wood, such as mahogany or Spanish cedar, we will in fact stain. Because what's so important with wood is that you see the beauty of the wood when the object's completed. Being at, being at a seal or a eagle, sea turtle that I have on display here, they are all dark wood. So what I want everybody to realize is, wow, this is wood. This is the beauty of the wood. I also have some North Atlantic bluefish here. That was basswood because what we wanted to do is bring in the color of the bluefish. Mm-hmm. And that was also a finished paint and resin on top of that. So that's oh, wow. what we sought to do with that. And that, as you probably saw earlier today, came out pretty nice. You did. It it's did. beautiful. It looks very realistic. Yeah, it is. And it's a perfect spot because it's yeah. on your way down to the pools. And like the colors really mesh so well. And I saw the lobster too, which was really cool as <laughs> well. Fine. Didn't your wife paint that? No, I actually painted the lobster. Really? (laughs) You did a great job. I I can. I can do it, but I just want to focus on what I do best, and that's the wood carving and sculpting, and let somebody, what they do best, the painting, and finish do the finished work for me. Yeah, well, you do a fabulous job. What um, would you say is the most challenging wood to carve? You know, mahogany. If, If I had my choice, if I had... If I could have the proper tools and have somebody sharpen my tools, I'd always go with something hard like black walnut or mahogany. That is a nice wood to carve because of beautiful grains. But now I've realized that realistically, you have to be easy on yourself and you have to carve a wood that's relatively soft. So that's these days why I lean more towards the Spanish cedar. It's got beautiful grains. It doesn't have quite the grains that mahogany and black walnut would have, but it still has beautiful grains. And as long as the finish is done correctly. So it's really that Spanish cedar is something that I seem to really gravitate towards and have had great luck with. Yeah, it's beautiful because that's Thanks. what you're using right now exactly. on the eagle. That's what you saw on yeah. the eagle, yes. It's amazing yeah. look and texture and color, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the finished piece when it's all said and done. So are I. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been working on that? This is the this is the seventh, going to be the eighth week, so it's taken wow. me eight weeks. I don't always stay in the same project continually. I flip-flop back and forth, mm. and I usually carve somewhere between 20 to 25 to 30 hours a week. Oh, wow. Carving is a great skill. It's a lot of fun. But it's not something you can sit down and do for eight hours. Right. You have to take breaks and, and do it, really address it that way. I'm sure. Yes. And would you say it's like a meditative practice? Uh, like, I, is it something where you go towards when you just want to, like, be in a stress-free environment? Let me use this as an example why I consider it to be a very meditative environment. <laughs> Not often do I do full day carvings because my wife has other things for us to do, but I'll start in the morning after breakfast and she'll holler down, holler down to my studio and she'll say, hey, it's time for lunch. And I'm thinking, lunch? We just had breakfast and it's 1230. <laughs> and then we'll go up and chit chat for a while and have a lunch and 
I'll go back into my studio and then she'll be hollering, hey, it's time for supper. I said, supper? We just had lunch. <laughs> and now it's five 5.30. So yeah, it definitely takes you away. It takes your mind to wherever you want to take your mind to be. I'm Very sure. meditative uh, in so many ways. I can see yeah, that. Relaxing. I can see that. I think like in walking by and seeing you um, carve out in the bald eagle, it just seemed so meditative. It was Cer- fascinating. It's very enjoyable. Now, I'm looking behind you. So we're, right now we're in one of the conference rooms in Cliff House. And uh, Nancy got to put up uh, one of Philip's lovely pieces. It's a mermaid. It's huge. How big is this? You'll probably see a picture that will go along with this podcast. But the mermaid herself is almost 10 feet long. Oh, my goodness. Because the piece itself is about six and a half feet. And as you can see, she is about three, a little over three feet of tail in there. <laughs> so the, she was actually almost 10 feet long, about nine and a half feet long. And then I, what I did was wanted to make a ship's mast. It's mm-hmm. what we call high relief. It's a, it's a six, six inch relief. She's not full in the round. She's actually high relief, which is six inches. So she's nine and a half feet long. And then underneath her is the actual simulating the bow of the ship that sticks out. And she sits on the bow oh, wow. looking to where the ship is headed. It's the direction. Thanks. And how long did that take? It took the better part of a year on and off. When you're doing something that that large, you certainly couldn't sit down unless you had some kind of very unusual mind and work on it all at the same time. So I had a special place for it. I put it in that place. And when I wanted to break away from what I was doing as far as a smaller carving go, I'd go and do some more scales. She has over a thousand scales on her. So you can see I did a lot of carving just in the scales on the tail. Oh my goodness. And the hair, yeah. so detailed. Yeah, the, the hair, I was surprised. I was even surprised how nice the hair came out. Yeah. Did a lot of reading, did a lot of studying. There's some great sculptors out there is some great carvers out there and I really wasn't sure her hair is large in size you know it's about two and a half feet from top to bottom and I wanted to make it right and uh, after a lot of study a lot of seeing the detail of the best way to do it I got in and experimented because that was the first time I did something hair to that extent but I think overall it came out pretty good yes it did thank you now what particular sculptors have you looked up to or really just learned from I actually started with a man named Demetrius Klotzitz he lives in Hamden Massachusetts and he's pretty renowned in the country when I say renowned those in the carving world have definitely heard of Demetrius today he's in his late 70s he's still carving his son had actually taken over his business but he's still carving his Youngest son and my son went to school together. And I used to pick up my son after school at Demetrius's house, and I'd go down to the carving shop, and I'd walk in there, and I'd get the smell of the carved wood, and I saw what was going on, and I said, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. Demetrius was a very skilled individual. I also had the opportunity a few times to carve with Chris Pye. Chris Pye is from England at the school uh, Center for Furniture Craftsmanship School in Rockport, Maine. I'd go up there and spend a two-week course with Chris Pye. Chris is an author, I think six or seven carving books, very skilled individual, a man that really could guide you in a two-week time as to a lot of the important details. It was more of advanced instructional, but it was, it was very interesting and very rewarding to spend the time with this man. 
And my third person I looked up to, and God rest his soul, Wicker Hearns. Wicker Hearns was quite a carver. He used to live in Vermont, and the name of his business was Whales in Vermont. And he used to carve whales in Vermont. He <laughs> loved the ocean, but he lived about 100 miles inland in the hills of Vermont. And I used to go up and visit with Wicker Hearns and carve a little bit with him. And it showed and taught me some amazing things where I don't know if he's ever been to the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though. Wow. Yeah. I, could, I would love to see these folks work. I his, can only imagine His pieces like. were in quite a few stores here in, in southern Maine and northern New Hampshire. Wow. Would you say there's a big network of wood carvers, wood sculptors in Maine? <sighs> there are some. There are not a lot. Unfortunately, carving wood sculpting, I think, is kind of a, a dying sport, so to speak. You know, with some of the advancement in machinery today, would it take somebody like myself or would it take an experienced and knowledgeable carver to do, a machine can do in a much shorter period of time. Right. And, and that's what people seem to see and that's what people seem to buy. And, you know, subsequently there's a big discrepancy in cost where somebody puts weeks and hours and weeks and months into a piece as compared to a machine that does something in a few days' time. Right. You know, it's not the same. It looks similar, but it's not the same. So unfortunately, you know, carving is kind of a, a thing of the past. Mm. It's always going to be prevalent. I think someday you're going to see more interest. I get asked all the time if I do instructional, and I, I haven't done instructional to date. But some of those that do are, are good carvers have kind of gone to the instructional end of things mm. because that seems to be where they can make more of a living today than just carving right. the pieces themselves. That's amazing. So there are some, and I've met some, and I've talked with a few, but not not near the numbers that there were 100 or 150 years ago when every boat building shop had multiple yeah. wood carvers. This, this at one time, southern Maine here, the Maine coast, was the home place of wood carvers because so much on the ship's were carved by wow, wood. Wow, you know, that's so amazing. Much. It is. It's really the homeland of, of wood carving wow. 100, 150 years ago. And it just died then. Yeah, pretty and, much wow. for the most part it has. I wonder what they're doing now with, with boats and wood carving. <sighs> Every, everything's done with machinery today. Really? Yeah, everything's done with machinery. That's you know? a shame. It mm. really is. It's, it's, a, it's such a... It's such a <sighs> invigorating skill to have to be able to do to be able to I always say people ask me from time to time what's it like and I said you know it's tedious it's time consuming sometimes it's boring but when that product product project product project is completed it's always very rewarding oh yeah and when a nice person comes along and says wow that's a beautiful piece I want it you feel real good. Sometimes oh, it's very man. difficult to give it up. <laughs> I'm sure. Because you put your heart and soul into this this sport, this profession, so to speak. But uh, it's rewarding when somebody that really appreciates what you do yeah. takes one of your pieces. I'm sure. pieces. Do you stay in touch with a lot of the folks that have purchased your products? I, I do because they are the people that come back, see what I'm working on, and say, ooh, look at this. I right. want this. So, yeah, that's an important component is to stay in touch with them. Most, most definitely. So, Have you created any custom work for any clients you've had? A couple of things I've done. I like doing lighthouses. I've done five lighthouses, six mm-hmm. lighthouses. And I did the Portland Head Lighthouse. And I had a person walk into the store and said, my God, that's the Portland Head Lighthouse. I said, I'm going to speak to them. They're going to want that. So the Portland Head Lighthouse that I carved, which is four feet long, is now in their museum, their history section or museum at the Portland Head Light 
Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's, it's it's yeah. That was very rewarding. I'm that sure. That was very rewarding. It's it's inside. Wow. Great history at that Portland Head Lighthouse. So much history there. It's actually in there. That's in their amazing. Museum, you should feel so good about that. Mm. Had a had a church in Hampton, New Hampshire, First Presbyterian Church. I think it was First Presbyterian Church came to me and said, "We've had a dove on top of our church for." Many, many, many years, probably over a hundred years, and it was it, was, it had come down because it was all deteriorated, and they were rebuilding part of the the steeple. So they said, "Can mm. you duplicate this?" Wow! And I uh, I spent some time, and it was a chore because what the type of wood they would use was chestnut, which which is kind of unusual today, and I wanted something that was probably not going to last for another hundred years, but at least they'd get okay. a period of time over there. So we have a we have a peace dove on top of the, the steeple oh, wow. of a church down locally. That's here. amazing. And a few small small smaller carvings in people's homes in and around that was some nostalgic nostalgic value to them. I'm sure. Yes. What would you say, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into wood carving or wood sculpting? You know, Demetrius Klatsitz, which I spoke about a minute ago from Greece, Carver, he said to me, I spent almost two years with him, but that was one afternoon a week and maybe Saturdays and maybe I get a chance to sneak up there on Monday nights. I didn't get a lot of time with him because I was actually working at the time. But uh, after about two years' time, I felt that I had a good understanding. He felt that I had a good understanding. And he's standing next to me one day, and he says to me, he says, you know, you can stand and watch me carve, or I can stand and watch you carve. But he said, the only way to really learn how to carve at this point, Phil, is to go out there and start doing it. So that's what I did. If someone's interested in starting, you know, there's so much available online today. There's so many books. Chris Pye, the author I spoke about before, has done some great books. So if anybody's interested in that, my advice to them is just do it. You know, just try it. Just give it a go. You're going to get frustrated in the beginning. Grains and wood can be very challenging. Carving can be very, very challenging. You can get very upset with yourself. I always say that wood is easy to take off, but almost impossible to put back on. Yeah. People have tried. Many people tell me stories about trying and giving it up. All I can say is stick with it, go for it, and try it. And you'd be surprised at some point in time, you may get comfortable with it. And once you get comfortable with it, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I'm sure. And where do you source your wood from? Here in Maine, I get it from uh, uh, Highland Hardwood in Wentwood, New Hampshire. There's also uh, gooseberry wood, gooseberry wood in uh, in New Hampshire. Also, uh, Chichester, New Hampshire, is hmm. another. So specialty wood sources. Mm-hmm. The type of wood I use is not structural wood. It's more for ornamental wood. In most cases, it's specifically for carving. I can also have it shipped in. Basswood is usually shipped in from Minnesota. Unfortunately, today, I shouldn't say unfortunately, today a lot of the basswood is actually grown on plantations. There are basswood trees. I just had somebody from northern Maine contact me just last week on some basswood trees that they had taken down. I don't know the capabilities to take the big logs of basswood, but it's, it's available. So you can actually, you know, you can find it. You can find people that harvest it here 
or you have to ha- go to specialty hardwood stores and buy it there. Gotcha. And you also get your tools, your carving tools from specialty hardwood yes, stores as from well? Yes, pretty much from specialty. Woodcraft mm. has been a big supplier. There's there's quite a few different brands in this country. The woodcraft stores are, have pretty much an exclusive on file tools, mm-hmm. but there's file tools and many many others out there that are really just as good. So it's a matter of, well, like everybody does today, online shopping for right. the best tools. Second, very important component of Starting carving is learning how to sharpen tools. Oh, yeah. You can only become a good wood carver with a sharp tool. You'll get frustrated real quick. So it's imperative that you learn how to sharpen tools. Right. And the Chris Pye and his courses up at the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship spent almost as much time on sharpening tools as he did on the actual wood carving because you wow. learn very quickly how important that is right. to be able to have sharp tools. I'm sure. Any other pieces of equipment that you use in the process? Like I know when I was seeing you outside, you were sitting at a table using some chisels like to go about you know the intricate details of the eagle. But what about like any just if you need more strength or oomph into the carving or do other other pieces of equipment you use you know there are there are pieces that i use but what you saw i'm finishing detail out there now what you saw are some of my small chisels and gouges i have some chisels and gouges that are the blades themselves are inch and a half two inches wide and you have a mallet which is oh, a wow. which is a fancy type of hammer. Right. So a lot of the heavy wood is usually taken off that way. And really, once you get pretty good at it with a sharp tool, you can take almost wood off as quickly as you can with a power tool. So okay. there's really no power tools involved in it for the hmm. most part. I do use some. What I use primarily is sanding. Okay. Sanding. Cutting the wood to shape and size and then sanding power. I, again, I like that nice finish on them so i do a lot of sanding as compared as i spoke about before a traditionalist is going to just do a gouge or a chisel finish on the wood nice what has been the most exciting project for you this one here at the cliff house was really challenging i guess i relate <laughs> challenging to to exciting and, yeah. and when nancy said you know kind of gave me a free reign in what to do when somebody says i'd like to see something that's about seven feet high and you do whatever you think best that is challenging. That's I'm challenging sure. and it's definitely exciting. And I tell you, the, the idea of a breaching whale, humpback whale breaching, as we look out from the ocean from the whale at the cliff house, if, if you ever get the opportunity, please take, take a look. It just fits so well. So that was a challenge and it came out real good. And I had it finished. I didn't finish it myself. I brought it down oh, really? and did all the carving and the sculpturing. Yeah, yeah. But then I brought it down to a professional finisher down in York. And he did the final for me. Wow. Because it was that important. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. What is the one project that you haven't touched on yet that you're wanting to touch on? Like, have you ever thought about like a dream you've had of being like, I really want to do this and it's going to be this big. And I'm sure, I'm sure that goes through your head constantly, but is there one? I've always been the bigger, the better. (laughs) And when I did this nine and a half foot mermaid here sitting behind me in the wall, that was a real challenge. And I want to do something that's large. My interest is doing something that's large in size. I'd like to do a, a, a full-size carving of some individual. I've often thought about maybe doing a carving of a, a firefighter or a police officer, maybe a firefighter. That's what I'd like to do, full in-action carving. But again, that's uh, in, in a lot of detail in that. And as 
as objects get larger, they just get more difficult. Dang. There's a whole different field out there. It's called chainsaw carving. And mm, a lot of fellows I've carve with chainsaws. And they do some incredibly incredible work. You know, once you get up to that scale, that's kind of what you want to do. You want to use more of that type of power equipment. But mm-hmm. again, a chainsaw carver can do in one or two days what it takes me six weeks to do, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I've got a list of things I'd like to do. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> that great. Are more practical to do, so to speak. But I, sure. I know what you're saying. And I've got a list of things that are next on tap. I do do some commission work. I like doing commission work. I like the challenge of commission work. But I always have a thought in my head, ooh, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I like to have somebody come along and say, ooh, that's nice. We mm-hmm. do we do commission. I do commission work from time to time. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy doing it. But, but what I like to do is what I like to do. Yeah. And let people see what I've done. Yeah. And, and they jump on there. board. Exactly. Right? That's exactly. what it's all about. Exactly. It's your creative thought process most, and what you want to do. And that's why I asked the question because I was yes. like, you know, what is something that you want to do? It's like a creative. And it sounds like you've done so much. What I've always wanted to do. So my logo is a wood grain main state logo. I saw it. I noticed it right uh, away. I, that's what I want. I want wow. to do nice. a, yeah, a wood carving of the state of Maine or the country because I also have a wood grain in the um, United States and have that be done so maybe I can work with you on that that would be amazing <laughs> I mean I just yeah I mean I, I when I went into this project I was like you know what really encompasses a maker and I feel like the wood grain it includes everybody I yeah. feel like it's a it's a mo- good descriptor mo- most, most definitely it certainly does yeah. so many ways I know why Maine? So why wood carve in Maine? Why wood sculpt in Maine? Why, you know, continue to do your craft here? Because I know you live here part time and you go to Florida, but it seems like Maine is certainly your home. And, you know, has the state inspired your work at all? We've been here 11. My wife and I have been here 11 years. We've owned our home for 11 years now. And even even in my teens, I used to drive up with friends to Moosehead Lake in Maine and always so intrigued by the state, especially the wilderness on the northern part of the state. But always have been, like so many people, a lover of the ocean and a lover of natural wildlife too. And we were fortunate to buy a home that's right near the uh, wildlife protection area there, our Rachel Carson Wildlife Preserve, and we're just, a, we're just one street back from the ocean. So we're in the perfect spot. And there's just so much here. In this marsh, we've seen moose, bear, fox, egrets, bald eagles, uh, falcons, all those. When I see something like that, it intrigues me. And then if I see something, I'll go home and start reading and studying about it. And Mm -hmm. before you know it, that becomes the next project. You can see those same animals, I guess, in just about any place in New England. You can see those in just about so many different ones in all parts of the country. But this is just, Maine is unique in itself in that you don't have to travel very far to see some really amazing things. And we have so many miles of coastline and fish in the ocean. Lighthouses, ships all intrigue me. And so, so, and mermaids. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So much desirable. Enjoyment in carving in the state of Maine, so much so. It's great. I'm glad Nancy and White realized, oh, realized yeah. that. <laughs> I'm so glad they introduced us. And I want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast. Your oh, yeah. story is so compelling and just how you retired and really taking a hobby and turning it into a full-time craft. Because I exactly. feel like right. a lot of people are right in the same boat as you as they want to make it full-time. 
you know, a lot of people don't know what they want to do when they, when they retire. What am I going to, what am I going to do? And I knew back when I was a teenager that someday I'd be wood carving. There Just didn't have the time and couldn't spend the time. But boy, I knew as soon as I, I was ready, it was ready for me. And <laughs> here I am. And I, I don't even look back. It was the greatest move I could have possibly done. Good for you. Yeah. I can see it. You have so much joy in just your face of when you go and describe your craft and your passion. It's amazing to see that. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time again. You're and you're um, quite welcome. I look forward to hearing more about what you're going to do in the future with your craft. Good. We'll be around. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Makers of the USA main series. And thank you to Phil for being on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about his craft and see his lovely pieces, I will link his website and social media handles in the notes section of the podcast. Also, please follow the Makers of the USA on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to see visuals of these wonderful makers that are part of this series. If you have enjoyed this podcast series thus far, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Facebook. Thank you all again and stay safe and healthy.